Well, last week, uh, if uh, you were with us, you know that we began uh, a brand new study in the Old Testament book of Esther. And just as a brief recap, uh, we studied chapter 1, and we took the time uh, together to immerse ourselves in the historical uh, and the cultural context of this book, the book of Esther. Uh, We know uh, that this is about 100 years after God's people uh, had been removed from Jerusalem, their homes, uh, their city. Uh, And their temple had been destroyed, um, burned to to the ground, left with nothing. And so now, by the time of Esther, we're we're dealing with a group of people uh, whose home had become Persia. Uh, God's people had become sort of a a hybrid of, of sorts. They are Jewish by heritage, by bloodline, but they are living as Persians. And we actually know that this was a choice uh, for the majority uh, of these people. That actually at one point uh, during the exile, the Persian king, his name was Cyrus, he allowed the Jews, the Jewish people, to to actually go back. He he freed them, in a sense. Uh, He said, go back, rebuild your city, uh, rebuild your, your temple. And that was God's desire, by the way. But even with that, uh, that allowance, if you will, many Jewish people, many of God's people made the decision to stay, to remain in Persia, to remain in exile, to keep their lives there for whatever reason. And so it's right for us to say that this is a very strange and uncertain time for God's people. Uh, They are scattered around the world And those particularly in Persia have been swept up in this culture that is going really the opposite direction uh, of the Lord and his will. On top of that, we know that God's people at this point, uh, they're weak. They are defenseless and truly living at the mercy of a ruthless and powerful pagan empire uh, and king. And so in light of that, in light of that, what we see is God's people at great risk of assimilating into the culture that they found themselves in. We see some of them, we know historically, uh, abandoning their faith and just taking on the gods of Babylon and Persia, uh, going with the current of the world. And making things much more difficult, we see that God seems absent. Uh, He seems silent through it all. Uh, And this is why, this is why I believe um, Esther is such a valuable story and book for us. Because it's a story for God's people, you and I, who are also at risk of assimilating into the culture to remind us that God's work might be hidden from us, but that doesn't mean that he is not at work. You see, in Esther, uh, God is not mentioned even once. He seems totally absent from the story, but in reality, we see that his fingerprints are all over this narrative if we just have the eyes and the faith to see it. Um, And this is a great, it should be a great encouragement to us because since God, we know, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can trust that he is doing the exact same thing in us and through us today. Well, with that, um, if you have a copy of God's word, I hope that you do. Why don't you open with me to the book of Esther? We're going to be in chapter 2 today. Um, You're going to want to have a copy of God's word in front of you because not every single verse will be on the screen, and so it will just be helpful for you to be able to sort of work through this as as we talk through it. Today, we're going we're gonna to walk through uh, the story, uh, just like last week. Um, I'll offer some thoughts and, and commentary along the way, and then at the end, I'll just give us some application to close our time together. So again, Esther chapter 2. Now, um, we know that between the events of Esther chapter 1, so it's been just one week for us, a Sunday, but between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, that four years have passed. We started this book 
Okay, in the third year of King Xerxes' reign as king. But now, if you sort of scan your eyes down to verse 16 of chapter 2, we see it's the seventh year of his reign. Okay? And so, there's four years that have taken place. And, and we know that between those four things, some significant historical events took place. Um, we know that Xerxes and his great army... Um, in this four years, have gone to war. It was a two-year war against the Greeks. Um, this is actually where the movie 300 takes place. It's in these, four, these two years. Okay? Um, they go there, they fight. It's interesting. Um, Persia has the Greeks, they have them on the ropes. They actually burn down the city of Athens, the capital city. It looks like they're going to win, but we know historically as well, um, the Greeks were uh, brilliant Brilliant tacticians, brilliant soldiers, warriors. And so with a few soldiers, they defeat many. The Persians lose. Xerxes uh, faces a devastating defeat. And so he sort of, I don't know, tail between the legs, if you will, makes his way back to Persia. uh, And then we enter chapter 2. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, this king, he's humiliated. Um, His ego is bruised. He has lost thousands, thousands of soldiers. Um, More money than we could ever fathom has gone into this war, gone. And then here's what happens next, starting in verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, that's his queen, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young women the young woman, excuse me, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king. And he did so. And so we see here he's, he's come back from war. Um, he's upset. If you remember in chapter 1, um, he calls his wife. He's, he's drunken. He calls his wife to him, to the party. She refuses, and so she's banished from ever seeing him again. Um, and there's this idea, oh, you need to uh, replace her, and how are they going to do that? And we have to understand, uh, as well, Xerxes, I said this last week, he's quite young. Um, he's in his mid-30s. And so um, when he says he went to the young men, he's talking about these leaders who are in their 20s. And guys in their 20s have this really great plan. <laughs> okay? And, and here it is. Um, it's pretty intense. Um, Xerxes has set out to replace Vashti. He needs to do that. There needs to be a queen. queen. And, and the way of going about that is they sort of uh, decide to have this ancient Near, Near East beauty contest uh, to find his new queen. It's like um, the bachelor in Persia, okay, if you will. Uh, and notice the requirements that are placed on these women. Again, this person is going to be the queen of one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And so, what should be the qualifications? Well, we see it has nothing to do with political savvy. It has nothing to do with her character. It has nothing to do with her family lineage or her money. There are just three virtues necessary uh, to be the queen in Persia. You need to be young, you need to be an unmarried virgin, and you need to be beautiful. And let's be very clear about this as well. Uh, this is not a competition uh, that you applied to enter. Okay? Now, if you lived in this empire and you were young, you were a virgin, and you were beautiful, um, according to the government official who's in that town anyway, um, you were enrolled into this. And why? Well, because we have to understand it's such a different world than the world we live in. Uh, or at least the city or, you know, Western culture, um, the empire owned you, okay? Um, you, you had no rights. And, and that wasn't just true of girls, by the way. 
Um, that was also equally true of young boys as well. For example, we know um, the, the greatest uh, historian of that time, um, Herodotus, he was, is very clear in his writings that every year 500 very young boys were chosen to be castrated. Um, in other words, made unable to have children and to serve as eunuchs in the Persian court, 500 every year. And if you weren't chosen or recruited for that job, most other boys, typically between the age of 8 and 10 years old, were sent away to the edges of the empire to serve in the empire's army. They broke those boys, okay, mentally, psychologically, um, away from their home to, becoming, to become warriors. And so again, everyone, male and female, were at the disposal of the empire and of the king and his egotistical pleasure. Everyone. So these are very, very dark times that we're in, okay, that we're reading about for most everyone. But even here in the midst of this darkness, um, as the story unfolds, we are going to see very clearly that God is at work. Well, then we're introduced to two key figures of this story, starting in verse 5. But now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Okay, on a, your own time, work through those names. It makes a lot of sense. Just take your time. Okay. Right here, we learn that Mordecai, important details, Mordecai was Jewish, and he is from the tribe of Benjamin. That detail there is not a mistake, by the way. It will become extremely significant later on. But what we see here now is that one of his ancestors, okay, we're not exactly sure exactly who, but one of them had been carried into that Babylonian exile, meaning that Mordecai is two to three generations removed from the, the, the exile that took place in 586 B.C., Okay, meaning that, again, it's important, he would, Mordecai, would have known no other life other than Persian life. He was raised as a Persian. And there is another interesting detail here, because on the one hand, we see he's a Jew. He knew his family lineage. He knew his blood. He knew his tribe. But on the other hand, his name was Mordecai, which was based on the name of a Babylonian god, actually, named Marduk. Okay, and so he takes the name of a Babylonian god. So either his parents gave him that name because they had assimilated into the culture, or Mordecai gave it to himself in order to be part of the culture, fit into the culture, work in the empire. More than that, we learn that, again, I just said it, but he worked in the citadel in Susa, the capital city, which means that he is right at the heart of the empire. He is involved deeply in the know of their politics. And so we put this all together, and we have this Jewish man, Mordecai, living with a Persian identity. It's complex, but it certainly raises some important questions, particularly if you were a Jewish person at this time reading the story. You would ask yourself, like, okay, is Mordecai a genuine follower of God? Or has his faith been compromised? You might ask, how assimilated has he become in the culture? And more than that, more than that, I think this is meant to get us to start asking questions of ourselves, the same ones actually. Like, what about me? Um, is my identity split? I don't mean like you're a TCK, okay? I mean spiritually. Is your identity split? Do I inwardly identify as a Christian, but outwardly live by another? How assimilated have I become into the culture that I live in? Well, then in verse 7, we meet Esther, it says this, 
he, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. Okay, so they are cousins. And why? For she had neither father nor mother. Her parents died. She's an orphan. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own, as his own daughter. So here we meet Esther for the very first time. We see that she lost her parents, um, of course, likely at a very, very young age, and was therefore raised by Mordecai. He takes her as his own. And we get very similar clues of Esther as we got of Mordecai. And that makes sense because Mordecai is raising Esther. So, for example, we see she has two names. Okay? One is Jewish. Okay? That's the name what there? Hadassah. Okay? The other name there is Persian. You know, I was sharing with some people in the back. It's interesting when we name our kids, if you have a daughter, um, all of us know, I don't, is there one here? There could be, um, watching online. A lot of us, you hear a Christian name for a girl, Esther. You hear that name. Um, it's interesting. You don't hear the name Hadassah much. Right? It's interesting. Some of you should name your daughter Hadassah. That's the Jewish name. Esther is actually the Persian name, named after the Greek god Ishtar. Okay? So, in Christianity, we take Esther. That's her name now. But technically, that's Ishtar, a pagan god. Okay? Sorry to spoil it for you. All right? So, that's what it is. All right? You should have done your research. All right? But anyway, Hadassah. Okay? Hadassah. We need more Hadassahs. All right? So, next one of you have a daughter. We claim that over her. Okay? I'm kidding. All right? Name her Esther. It's fine. It's a beautiful name. All right? Esther. We get similar clues, though. Two names, okay, two names, one Jewish, one Persian, which tells us that, again, like Mordecai, though, she's, she's certainly, she's living with, with two identities or a sense of two identities. And that's important because these two identities are in direct conflict to one another. There's nothing shared in common between Jewish expectation and Persian expectation. And so this is going to be Again, significant as this story unfolds because, again, you cannot live out of these two identities at the same time. Only one can define her. While the story continues, verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. And put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So right here we see that Esther's world uh, changes uh, totally. We can't underestimate this. We don't know when. Um, morning, evening, night. It's a, maybe it's a knock on the door. The king's harem has called. And they have come to take her away from her family. We're not told, again, how this is done, but just that it was done, and that we know, it seems by the language here, that this is out of her control, okay? And I don't think, or sorry, I do think that this does beg a question for us, though. Um, I thought about this a lot. Like, why didn't Mordecai, her father, fight or resist this? Surely, surely, um, this wasn't a surprise to him. He worked in Susa. He knew, he knew being in that government place that this edict was going to go out. And so why did he allow this to happen to his daughter? Why didn't he send her away and try to hide her? Why didn't he quickly attempt to, to marry her off? Why is there no resistance here? If he is a faithful Jew and a loving dad, think about that. Those of you who are dads here with daughters in particular, your young daughter, and a loving dad, how can he give his daughter away to satisfy, knowing for the sole purpose of satisfying the pleasure, the pleasure of a pagan Gentile king? How? 
I mean, if you know anything about God's Old Testament law, you know that this edict goes against everything that God expects of his people. And so for Mordecai, where is his boldness? Where is his courage? Where is his faith? It's, it's not here at all. It's not here at all. And so this is, we have to understand, this is quite different than the story of Daniel, who also was someone brought out of Jerusalem and brought out uh, uh, and put into Babylonian captivity, right? Same captivity, same situation, same lineage, right? If you remember the story, Daniel is taken into captivity. He's in the king's court. He has access to the king, actually, and Daniel refuses. It says that he resolved in his heart, actually. Very strong word. He resolved, refused to follow Babylon's ways. Why? Because they violated God's laws. Right? He wouldn't even eat their food. Right? Because it was against the dietary restrictions. It became illegal to pray. What did he do? Three times a day, on his knees, praying to his God, even though it wasn't allowed, illegal. But now we see another Jew in similar circumstances, a moment of choice, a moment with potential resistance, and we see the opposite response. Now, we do see in verse 11, it's on the screen, but we do see in verse 11 that Mordecai, there's a level of care and concern Because he does seem to be checking in on Esther regularly. He doesn't just completely let her go. But still, he has allowed her, seems like, allowed her to go towards a path that was likely to lead to an isolated life as a concubine. So what's going on here? Is is Mordecai grieved at all over this and, and the sin that's on display before him? Or had he already abandoned his identity as a Jew? Right? Maybe he was only a Jew by name and not by lifestyle. Right? Or, or, or maybe it's as simple as he thought that this would help his daughter to have a better life. Right? Knowing that she'd be taken care of in that palace because she certainly would. Right? Honestly, we don't know. We don't know his heart. We don't know his motivation. Uh, We don't know his thinking. We just know that he was willing to send her away. And so this story we see here, it's complex again, very complex. There is clear compromise here. There's conflict and confusion in this story. But let's keep going. Verse 9. And the young woman, that's Esther, pleased him, that's Haggai, and won his favor, okay, the king's lead eunuch. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. Why? For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And so we learn here that Esther quickly learned how to survive and thrive, by the way, in this environment. It says that she actually won favor with Haggai. And so with that, she's having more than her needs met. She's living the life now, right? Uh, She is getting the Chanel, right? says, all the cosmetics, the good ones, right? Surf and turf, right? Both, steak, lobster, it's hers. And it says that her and the seven other women are sort of upgraded to the penthouse. So she's living the life. But this also tells us something about Esther as well. I think, first, it tells us that she is in this. In other words, she's in it to win it, actually. She's got some determination. But in that, in that, as with Mordecai, we see that interestingly, she has no resistance to this process as well. Right? There is no record 
of her attempted escape. No refusal to eat the king's food, which again would have been breaking the, uh, the Jewish law. And, and maybe you're like, well, what, how could you say that? Like she couldn't. She couldn't. She was captured, taken away. She had no choice here. But again, I would say back to you, what about Daniel? Well, she could have died. So too with Daniel. Right? Or maybe a better and more relevant example besides Daniel, because you're thinking, well, she's a female. What about her rights? Well, what about Queen Vashti? A non-believer, a non-Jew. Because just in the chapter before, we learn uh, about this woman, this queen, who resisted the empire and resisted the king in his request. But resistance doesn't seem to be anywhere on the radar here in this story. Instead, she seems eager and willing to assimilate to this process. And isn't verse 10 a bit telling as well? Because not only does Mordecai and Esther not resist, but they keep their heritage, they keep being Jewish, a secret. Which certainly is not something that you would expect a faithful Jew to do. And so she looked Persian, she dressed Persian, she's acting Persian. And then in the next section of scripture, we are told that all of these, all of these young, beautiful women, uh, they would go through a one-year, 12-month, beautifying process. Think of it like a year-long spa treatment. Okay? And all of that, that 12 months, was preparing them to spend one night with the king, King Xerxes. The best makeup, the best jewelry, the best clothes, the best perfumes and oils for one night. And after that one night, these women would never see the king again unless he specifically called her by name, which was unheard of, by the way. Because understand, we are likely, historically, we know, we're likely talking about not a few, okay, but hundreds of women. You prepare one year, each of these women, to sleep with the king one night, knowing, by the way, in that only one can be the queen. Meaning that all the other women, what would happen to them? Well, we know what would happen very specifically. They would be widows. They're not allowed to marry. Uh, They cannot go back to their families. You are stuck in the palace, in the harem, for the rest of your life with the other girls in the palace who were also rejected, who also spent one night with the king, King Ahasuerus. That's the scene that we're in here. And so this is a very inhumane picture of human trafficking and rape. That's what this is. It's very dark. And now we learn that it's Esther's turn. She's prepared one year. She goes and spends the night with the king. And this is what the scripture says. And the king, that, the next morning, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the other virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So we see now, she's won favor with Haggai in the past during that year-long process of preparation Now we see she wins favor with Xerxes, the king. And with the whole context here, um, honestly, as you read through this, it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, There's kind of an uneasy feeling about this, 
Um, actually, I don't know about you, but it feels compromising, doesn't it? As a, a young Jewish girl spends the night with this pagan Persian king who has been sleeping with countless other girls night after night after night before Esther. Now, the author doesn't use the word here, okay? Doesn't use the word here, but we can infer from the passage that Esther then marries Xerxes, okay? Marries Xerxes, which is also, by the way, a clear violation of God's law. Why? Because she is a Jew and he is an unbeliever. But even still, Esther will be queen. She becomes queen. A party is thrown. Taxes are lifted. Gifts are given. And Esther's rise to power within the palace court is nothing short of remarkable. And yet, and yet, I believe it is crucial for us to see that this story all over it, it is littered with compromise. Compromise. Now, to be fair, because I want to be fair to the story, we don't know Esther's heart here. There's just nothing in the text. No evidence. Was she devastated by what was happening to her life? Or, on the other hand, was she thrilled by this change, right? This new position and status that she'd achieved, if you will. We don't know. But I do believe that we can rightfully say two things. First, she did have a choice to make. She did have a choice. It could have ended with her life if she made the wrong choice, but she did have a choice. And with that, we know she did not rise to power because of obedience to God. That's important. It wasn't her faithfulness. It wasn't godly, holy decisions that led to this this throne. We see that with Joseph, for example, in Egypt, right? He remains faithful the entire time. He refuses to go Uh, the ways of the world. He remains faithful to the Lord and it causes him, it leads him to a rise of power and authority. We do not see that with Esther. And so let's be clear that the author is not holding up Esther as a moral example to be followed here. Not yet anyway. Okay, not yet. Hang in there. Not in this story here in chapter two. There is a choice made. And it's hard to argue that there is not compromise with that choice. And by the way, this is why you don't see a whole lot of Sunday school or kids kids lessons on Esther 2, okay? There's not a whole lot. The rest of the story, yeah, we talk about that, right? It's in the little kids' Bibles. This is the picture and the queen. It's all good. Esther 2 is not in the kids' Bible. Well, then we finish the chapter, and it's a bit of an interesting turn. There's a pivot, if you will. It says this, Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. So we see that detail again. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Then and, uh, let's call it Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They want to kill him. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. So historical record is made of this and what happened. So we learn here that Mordecai worked at the king's gate. 
And it's not really a gate uh, in the way that you think of it, right? You're thinking right now of this big steel gate and Mordecai's sitting at the gate. That's not what this means. The gate is a, it's a large complex, actually. Think of it like um, the Yongsan Guchan office, okay? It's um, like a central office where all of the palace affairs took place. He worked there in the citadel. And what happens? Well, Mordecai hears of two men planning to assassinate Xerxes. So what does he do? He tells Esther about this. She turns around and tells her king, Xerxes, and then those men are hanged. Now, we should know that typically, um, in a lot of actually ancient empires, but we know in Persia that acts of loyalty to the king, towards the king, were rewarded immediately. There was great reward for loyalty, but apparently that's overlooked because it doesn't happen. And so, This sounds like a a bit of a a strange story to end the chapter. But it has huge impact, similarly to Mordecai's heritage, huge impact later on. So as we work through the narrative, all I ask you to do is just keep filing all of these happenings, all these details away. None of this is accidental. None of it is without purpose. But at least for now, the chapter comes to an end. So we have this story of assimilation. We have compromise. We see some edgy Persian politics. We see a potential assassination. Still, there is no mention of God. And in fact, God doesn't seem to be in the picture at all. And so, what do we make of all of this? What do we do with this? And this is where we get to how Esther's story intersects with our own story. How our two stories sort of collide. So let me give us some application here. I'm going to share three application points very briefly with us. This whole chapter, again, I've said this a few times, but really the chapter, the whole book, is filled with compromise, conflict, and confusion which is often the backdrop of our own lives, right? Often our world, our lives are are riddled with compromise, conflict, and confusion. And so the first point I want to highlight and, and take note of is this. Number one, that compromise always bears bitter fruit. Compromise always bears bitter fruit. This chapter shows us that sinful disobedience and compromise has far-reaching consequences beyond what we often think. You know, when we sin, uh, I can speak from Westerner at least, but uh, when we sin, we tend to think that it only impacts us and maybe, maybe a small circle around us. But that is certainly not the case, and we see that in the story of Esther. Let's be clear. Let me be clear before I even keep moving with that. The grace of God, we know this. Don't, don't leave here without this. The grace of God is strong enough and sufficient enough to forgive any sin done by anyone, anywhere, no matter how dark it is or how persistent it is. Right? Nothing you have done can keep God from forgiving you. When you turn from your sin, if you turn to Christ and trust him by faith. But, but, at the same time, we must not allow that gospel truth to neglect the other truth that there are very real consequences to our sin. And so listen, there is a very real difference between forgiveness of sin and the consequences of that sin. Yes, God makes us clean. We know this, right? That he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, right? It's, it's, it's infinitely far from us, our sin. But that does not mean that he always removes the consequences of our sin. And this story in Esther is an indication of that so clearly, so clearly. And how do we know that? Because, well, after all, Why were Mordecai and Esther in Persia to begin with? 
Why do we even have the book of Esther? Why are they there? Well, they are there because we know God's people, centuries before this, had disobeyed and totally abandoned God. And so as a result of that, we know that God allowed his people to be exiled for the temple to be destroyed. He allowed it to happen because of their disobedience. And even more, even more, don't forget this detail as well. 50 years previous to this story, we know, said it in the beginning, Cyrus allows the Jews, King Cyrus allows the Jews to go back home to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. But what happened? Many chose not to go, even though it was God's command and desire to go back. And who does that include? Who made that choice? That includes Mordecai and Esther's family. They disobeyed. They preferred their current lives, the comfort of Persia, maybe, rather than trying to start over and going to a barren wasteland to have no no security, no promise of a good life. They chose to remain. And so these decisions that were made against God years, years before lead us to the events we are in here in Esther. And so what does she do? Because of all the past, all that had been done, what does she need to do? She marries an unbeliever. She marries an unbelieving Gentile. She goes goes into isolation, cut off, from her people. More than that, she's pretending, she's living a life pretending to not belong to God. Through her father's advice, by the way. And her rise to power in Persia came at the cost. There's a cost of submitting herself to a morally compromising situation. But listen, none of this, none of this would have happened if there was just trust in the Lord to begin with. We wouldn't even have this story. Do you see that? It's important to see that. So we need to learn. We need to learn from this that compromise always bears bitter fruit. We can be forgiven The stain of our sin is removed, no doubt about that. But we still oftentimes bear the consequences. So again, this is here for us. This is here in part, not as a warning as much as it is uh, God's love, actually. It's a warning, but let's call it a loving warning, and maybe the, Lord, maybe the Lord has brought you to this place today. You're here to get, to get, you know, with us here together. You're watching online. Maybe you're here today just because you need to hear one question. One question, and that is, is there anything that you must turn from right now? How are you compromising your faith? Listen, we know clearly all throughout the scriptures, and it says directly, we reap what we So, and so what are you sowing today? What seeds are you sowing today? Number two, number two, we learn here, I think, in this narrative that past compromise does not disqualify us from future faithfulness or fruitfulness. Past compromise does not disqualify us from future fruitfulness. Now, at this point in the story, I've already said that Esther is not a model or example for us to follow. Right? That'll change as the story moves forward. Um, we'll see later her example of boldness and courage we should follow. But for now, if the story ended right here, we again see that she lived a life along with her father, Mordecai, a life that is sprinkled with compromise. But what we will learn is that her history of compromise will not disqualify her from future fruitfulness. 
And so this is meant to be a great encouragement to us. This is actually a, a great hope for all of us who, who find ourselves in compromising or compromised circumstances of our own making. And so maybe you here, you're today, and, and you, maybe you're contemplating this, or maybe you did marry an unbeliever, or maybe you chose a career path based on the wrong heart and the wrong motivation. Maybe you've just simply wasted your life pursuing the wrong goals because of the wrong ambition. Maybe you've made your way through life um, you know, lying your way through things and being cunning and crafty and deceiving. Maybe you've kept God at an arm's length because of, of nurturing a particular sin in your life. On and on and on we could go with examples of this, with examples of compromise. But listen, if we step back long enough, if we do this, we see the reality very quickly. The Spirit of God will speak through each and every one of us that we are actually all Mordecai's, and then we are, we are all Esther's, aren't we? We've all been compromised, and we all are compromising. We all fall short of God's standard and his glory, and yet what's so encouraging about the story is that God still uses these people. He's not done with them. He's not done. And what that means for you and I is that Though we compromise, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. Your past failures do not write you out of God's script for his future. Your past compromise does not disqualify you from future usefulness in his kingdom, as the story will make very clear. So maybe you're here today and you feel unusable, weighed down. Maybe no one knows this, but internally you have just given up. How might the Lord, even now, be inviting you into deeper trust in him today? Listen, he has not given up on you if you belong to him. And so what would it look like to, to even just take one step towards trusting him in that truth? And then lastly, I want us to see this, that God is at work in our compromise. God is at work in our compromise, certainly related to the last point, but I want to get a little bit more specific And this is a point that we're going to continue to come back to again and again. We said last week, God is at work when we don't see it. Now we see he's at work in our compromise. Over and over again, we're going to see this theme in Esther. It's a major theme in the book. That even in the darkest moments of life, and just the general sense of God's absence, right, where you're left wondering, where are you? Where are you, God? What what are you doing in all of, that, all of those circumstances, in this story, we learn that God is able to use our disobedience for his glory and the good of other people, actually. It's, it's crazy. But we will continually see God's hand, his sovereign hand, his providential hand, is hovering over every single detail of this story and therefore every single detail in your life. Details that are even morally compromising to bring about his will and his purposes. See, we know, we know that God is is patient. He's so patient, isn't he? But he is patiently and steadily working through a series of events. Things that look like coincidences, uh, questionable motives, darkness, To do what? To make beauty. That's why we say beauty from ashes, right? And we can't see it from the middle of it. When we're in the middle of it, we can't see it. Which means, for now, the message of of Scripture is clear that we walk by faith, not by sight. Amen? 
Just like Joseph explained to his brothers, that same Joseph, what happened to him? Why was he in Egypt in the first place? His own brothers, his own brothers sold him into slavery. Dismissed him from the family. And when they, they meet once again, Joseph is, his power is unquestionable second in charge of all of Egypt, the brothers go to him, they meet in Egypt, and they expect severe consequences, severe punishment. What does Joseph say to his brothers? He says this, you intended evil towards me, but God intended it for good. And look, look, if you have any questions about whether God is is able to turn evil into good, the only place that you need to look at is the cross of Jesus, where we see the greatest, the greatest evil that could ever be committed, committed by man, the murder of God on the cross. God uses that to bring about the greatest good potentially avail- uh, that's available to man, the salvation of sinners, the adoption into his family as son and daughters through faith in Christ. God took the worst evil and used it to bring about the greatest good. And so if you ever wonder, what can God do with your sin What could God ever do with my failure? What could he do with my darkness? Look at the cross. If you ever wonder how God looks at the Mordecai's and Esther's of the world, and you can relate to them, you see them, you see yourself, you're compromised, look at the cross. Listen, Jesus, Jesus is not, he is not a self serving dictator like Xerxes who is eager to dispose of us. Never. He is a good king who laid down his life for all of the Esthers and Mordecais of the world that we might be forgiven, given everlasting joy, and so that we would have this great promise of new hope and life with him. And so the question that I want to leave us all with today is simple. It's simple. Will we set aside compromise and trust him? FEC family, let's all choose. Let's all commit, resolve in our hearts today. Let's resolve to place our hope, our trust in the only one, the only one who can save us and redeem us from this world that is so filled with compromise, conflict, and confusion. Amen? Let me pray for us. I'll ask the the worship team, praise team, to come back up and join me.